Good morning. I'm sorry I'm not with you in person. Um, our family went on vacation for a couple weeks and we had a lovely time, but we returned from vacation with COVID. Um, I'm still experiencing symptoms, so we thought that the safer and wiser thing to do would be to share my sermon by video rather than be there with you in person in the room this morning. Um, I'm grateful that there's technology that allows me to still share God's word with you, and I'm grateful that we can do it in a way where I'm not also sharing my germs with you. Will you join me in prayer as we begin our time in God's word this morning? Gracious God, we thank you for this time and this place and this space to hear from you this morning. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you. God, I pray that your spirit would be speaking new life into our hearts and into our lives. And Lord, I pray that this morning your spirit would bring us your hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's go ahead and dive into this passage, shall we? Are you like me? I've been wondering all week, why in the world are we reading this story about Noah? You know, I confess that I, this week I may have even asked a few other people. So do you remember exactly why Pastor Stacy would have included this passage from Genesis in our study of the beginning books of Genesis? No one really had a good answer for me. I know that as we've been working through the beginning books of Genesis, we're looking at how these passages point to Jesus. We've looked at the story of creation and of Adam and Eve and the fall and of Cain killing his brother Abel. We've looked at some of the genealogy in Genesis. And most recently, we've spent time in the story of Noah and the flood and God's promise to his people. So here we are after the flood, after God has brought Noah and his family and all the animals out of the ark, and after God has set down his bow in the sky, promising that he will never again flood the whole earth. We had some rough moments along the way, but everything seems to be on an upward trend now, right? Not quite. After all, we're still human. As we spend time in God's Word this morning, I know it's challenging to receive the words of a sermon through a video. So I'm going to give you three questions to help give a little focus to where we're going. Know that each question is going to bring you into a new section of the sermon. So our first question is, what in the world is happening in this biblical text? What in the world is happening in this biblical text? Well, at first glance, it seems pretty straightforward, right? As Pastor Stacy said a couple weeks ago, I get the chapter on drunk and naked Noah. And that's pretty much what we read in our scripture for today. Noah plants a vineyard. Noah drinks a little too much wine from the vineyard. He uncovers himself and Noah passes out in his tent. One son, Ham, goes into the tent and sees that his father is passed out drunk. And he goes to tell his brothers. But it's not like he's raising alarm. He's not going out and saying, hey, come help. Dad's passed out in the tent. It's much more likely that Ham is laughing at his father and making fun of Noah when he tells his brothers what he saw. 
The other two brothers, Shem and Japheth, well, they go into the tent walking backwards with a blanket between them. They turn their faces away from looking at their father and they cover up Noah without looking at him. And then they both exit the tent and they don't tell anyone what they just saw. The early church tried to take this text and make it an allegorical story where each person in the story represents something bigger than the one person and there's a hidden moral meaning here. But in the reading and the studying that I did, no one supports that this story is an allegory. The consensus is that it did happen as it's written in God's word. It's an odd story though. One commentator said it's even fair to wonder why on earth didn't the editor of these chapters take a blue pencil to this nasty little paragraph? Why would God have included it in the larger canon of scripture? Well, we're reading this story now with a 21st century lens, so it's helpful to look in detail at parts of the story that we might miss looking at it as a modern day reader. For example, did you notice that Ham is named as Canaan's father two separate times in this reading? In verse 18, we read, the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was a father of Canaan. And later in verse 22, it says, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father. The original audience for this text is the Israelite people. When the Israelite people left behind slavery in Egypt, God led them to the promised land, a land that was already inhabited by a number of people, including the Canaanites. The Israelites were warned about the Canaanites in Leviticus 18. In Leviticus 18 verses three and four, we read, you must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you. Do not follow their practices. Not only are the Israelite people told not to do as the people do in the land of Canaan, but they are told to completely wipe out and destroy any people who are living in the promised land before the Israelites move into that land. One of those people groups, the Canaanites, was known for their sexual immorality, and they were known for their hard-heartedness against God. So this story in our reading today helps put into context why there was a command to destroy the Canaanite people in the promised land. Ham's sin against his father was great, and Canaan's sin would be even greater. And Canaan's descendants, the Canaanites, the offspring of Canaan, would be even more sinful. Another thing to notice in this text is that Noah is the one who is drunk and naked, but Ham is the one who ends up cursed. So in this passage, we don't see Noah punished for his own personal sin. This text is not trying to show us that drinking wine is sinful. In fact, there are many other places in the Bible where it speaks of drinking wine in a positive light. We do see that Noah is not acting out of wisdom as he's drinking the wine. He overconsumes, leaving himself drunk, possibly with slurred speech and slow thoughts, and he's vulnerable to however his sons might treat him. Ham's actions when finding his father Noah are what the text is pointing to as the sinful behavior. Ham looks on his father and does nothing to help him. 
Not only does Ham leave Noah as he finds him, but Ham also goes and tells his brothers what he's found. So Ham takes no action to help his father in a vulnerable state, and Ham exploits his father's vulnerable state by making fun of Noah to his brothers. It hasn't been written yet at the time of this story, but one of the commandments that God gives to his people in Exodus 20 is to honor your father and mother. Ham does not, and this is his sin. There's one other thing that I want you to notice in this text. Noah proclaims both a curse and a blessing over his sons. The words that Noah speaks in and of themselves don't have power to shape the future. The words are spoken by Noah. These are not words that are spoken by God. Noah's words do speak prophetically though. The Canaanites end up under a curse because they do not do what God asks of them. Shem will be blessed because he's seeking to follow God and he's seeking to follow God's ways. God is praised in this blessing and God is gonna be the source of Shem's blessing. Japheth will be blessed as well because of his relationship with God and because of his relationship with Shem. The curse and the blessing speak of the future of these three family lines. These families live into that curse and that blessing as they either reject God in God's ways or as they follow God in God's ways. So this brings us to our second focusing question. How can this story speak to our lives today? How can this story speak to our lives today? Some of you may know that I lived in Lafayette prior to starting my role at ECC. Um, I taught school at Lafayette Christian School for six years, and about halfway through that time here in Lafayette is when I started attending ECC. Now, I recognized in myself that I loved teaching the Bible, and I loved walking with my students on their faith journey, and it was people here at ECC who helped me discern my own call to ministry. Now, I said that I loved teaching Bible, and I did, and our third grade Bible curriculum covered the books from Genesis through Joshua. Believe it or not, this story about Noah drinking too much wine was included in our unit on Noah. So I have taught this passage before to a classroom of third grade students six times. It was challenging. I recognize now that one of the temptations, even for myself at that time, is to take this passage and go down the path of the allegory. It's tempting to take this biblical narrative and apply it to something in our lives today and walk away with a moral to the story. There are a number of moral lessons that we can impose on this story. We can all make a list of what they might be. It seems like that's the most logical thing to do with a biblical text when we don't know what to do with the biblical text. We look for the moral of the story. We might read it and walk away thinking the lesson is don't get drunk. Or maybe we think it's trying to tell us to treat your parents with respect. Or maybe it's saying don't talk poorly about others in your family. Maybe it's saying help when someone else has sinned. So while I did say that this passage points to the sin of Ham and that he did not honor his father, I don't say that to force a moral lesson onto the text. When we look at the text in its original context, this might be one of the connections that the Israelite reader at the time would have made. The Israelite reader knew, honor your father and mother, and they can see Ham is not doing that. 
So while I don't think we should read this passage as a moral tale that points our contemporary culture to a lesson, I do think that God, reading God's word can bring about transformation in our own lives. I do think that hearing this story, even from Noah's life, it can point us toward questions that give us a lens as to how God might be working in our own lives today. We can hear God speaking to us as we sit with the questions around the text. There are family dynamics at work here that go far beyond the passage we read. Think about all the time that Noah had with his sons. They were together as a family before the flood. Then when God commanded Noah to build the ark, well, I would imagine that his sons were there building alongside him. Then they lived together on the ark for a long time. Noah and his sons have moved off the boat and they're resettling into a land where they are the only humans, human beings who remain. They have spent a lot of time together. So use your holy imagination with me for a moment. I wonder, what might the relationship between Noah and his sons have been like? Was this the first time the sons had seen their father drunk? How did they speak about other people outside the family when they were together as a family? How did they speak in private with each other about the members of their own families? We don't have answers to these questions in our Bible. We can wonder what kind of family dynamics shaped an environment where this story might happen. And then we can ask ourselves the same questions of our own families. What's the relationship between the adults and the children in our homes? Have our children, our grandchildren, our nieces and nephews witness behaviors in us that we try to keep hidden from other people? How do you speak of people in your home when they aren't around? How do you speak of people in your family? How do you speak to the people in your family? In our kids programs, we use a curriculum called Orange where we seek to connect the influence that parents have at home with their children with the influence that the church has on our children. Reggie Joyner is the founder and CEO of Orange, and he says one of the most sobering truths about parenting is that you are teaching your children something, whether you are being intentional or not. What kind of family culture are you cultivating in your home? It's true for all of us as we interact with the next generation. In your interactions with children here at church, or with children in your neighborhood, or with children in their schools, or with children even in the grocery store, the things that we do and say, and the things that we don't do, and the things that we don't say, will those have an effect on how children interpret the world around them? Finally, our last focusing question is one that we've been looking at in this whole series. How does this text help point us to Jesus? How does this text help point us to Jesus? 
When we look at where this story is in the book of Genesis, this story fits in as part of the story of the earth being populated again after the flood. In the beginning of Genesis 9, we have echoes of the creation story from Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 9, 7 says, as for you, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase upon it. These were words spoken to Noah, but they were also spoken to Adam and Eve in the beginning. Noah tills the soil and plants a garden and a vineyard. This is what Adam does in Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Adam was placed in a garden to work it and take care of it. Noah is a man who is working in the soil to work the earth and take care of it. There's a return to the garden. The flood has happened and the waters have receded. Noah is a second Adam. God's creation begins again. There is hope. Maybe the creation and the creature are now going to fully follow and obey and honor the creator God. As we heard last week, God has set down his bow in the clouds. The bow, the weapon of war is pointing away from humans. God is no longer waging war against humans. Maybe this time will be different. We wonder, will sin be a part of this new creation? The first story that we have after the flood and after this new covenant with God, it points us to a resounding yes. Sin will be a part of this new creation. Sin is still here. In fact, this story progression, it illustrates a pattern that appears throughout scripture. In John Golden Gay's commentary, Genesis for Everyone, he says, when God does something new, and you might think we have entered a new stage of the fulfillment of God's purpose, pretty soon things go wrong, and you realize that the kingdom of God has not arrived after all. Things did go wrong pretty quickly. This doesn't surprise God at all. When God received Noah's offering in Genesis 8:21, we read, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of human beings, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. God knew that the people would continue to sin. God knew that no single person would be born on this earth without sin in their hearts. Adam and Eve sinned against God. Noah, in Genesis 6, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah sinned against God. Ham sinned against God. While they did the honorable thing in the story, I'm pretty sure that later on, Shem and Japheth, they sinned against God. As the nations grew in number again, they sinned against God. As the judges ruled over Israel, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and the people sinned against God. As the kings ruled over Israel, 
the kings and the people sinned against God. As the prophets spoke God's word to God's people, the people sinned against God. As John the Baptist told the people to repent, people sinned against God. We see it in the original creation and we see it in this new creation after the flood. There isn't a human who will be a human as God created humans to be. Humans are going to fall short. No matter how blameless we may be at times, no matter how much we are people who seek after God's own heart, you and I will never be sinless. There is only one perfect human. And he was a human as God created humans to be because he was also God. Jesus is the only one who can restore us to a full and right relationship with God because Jesus will be the only perfect human ever. We read in Romans 5 that sin and death came into the world through one man, through Adam, and that sin and death spread to all people. But the grace and forgiveness of God also came through one man, through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, the grace and forgiveness that Jesus offers can be spread to all people. We won't ever be a perfect people. We should still invite God's spirit into our lives so that we can be continually transformed more and more into God's likeness. But no human is ever going to show us that perfect image of who God is. To see the perfect reflection of God in this world, we can only look to Jesus. Jesus, the one who gave up heaven to come live here on earth so that he could show us the perfect reflection of God in human form, something we could never show ourselves. You'll sin this week. I will sin this week. We all will. You might not end up like Noah in his tent or like Ham making fun of his father, but we will all make mistakes. In those moments, look for the invitation to turn back to God, to confess your sins, and to receive God's forgiveness. I think the legacy of being honest about our shortcomings and confessing them to God and receiving God's forgiveness and living as a forgiven people and extending that forgiveness to other people in the world, I think that legacy will speak volumes to our children. As Reggie Joyner said, we are teaching our children something, whether we're being intentional or not. Let's teach them to look toward Jesus. I'll close with Romans 5.15. Romans 5.15 says, But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. Let me read that again. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? The grace that overflows to the many, it's for you and it's for me. And it's my prayer that you receive that grace in your life this week. Amen and amen.